Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast for Book 5, Chapter 14. How much of Palagushka's story about the cave, uh, in yesterday's chapter, the oil weeping from Holy Mother statue, do you think should be believed? How much do you think these three characters, Pierre, Andre and Maya, believed it? Pierre and Old Bolkonsky argue about the possibility or impossibility of a time without war, what are your thoughts on that subject? And Pierre's arrival ushers in a measure of peace in the house. At the very last, least, the family seems much happier with him here. How long do you think he will stay? He does seem to have a very welcome presence in Bald Hills. Warren Kovafi says, I think the Palagushka wants to keep up appearances with these tales of holy pilgrimages and such, so maybe some scepticism is warranted. Maya and Pierre seem to believe her stories, while Andre doesn't believe at all. There's a good contrast between hopeful and young Pierre and older, more cynical Bolkonsky. I'd certainly hope there's an end to war, but I don't have as much optimism as Pierre. We are now some 200 years since the setting of War and Peace, and Pierre's prediction doesn't appear to be coming true anytime soon. I'm pretty sure Pierre left Bald Hills at the end of this chapter. I hope he comes back, though, because he seems to have brought a lot of happiness with him to the Bolkonskis. I think it's um, the greatest praise is that old man Bolkonski liked him. I think that's the first person in the whole book that old man Bolkonski has seemed to genuinely like. Zuyon said this chapter was surprisingly sweet. I think this really is the best environment for Pierre. Bright people that enjoy his company without afterthoughts. So I hope he'll spend some more time with them. Maybe it will even help him get more confident. That would be good. Samantha Cruz says based on what we know about the characters thus far, I feel like Maya doesn't exactly believe the whole story about, but sorry, wants to let them in the house and tell their stories. The pilgrims, that is. For she feels duty as a good Christian woman. I doubt Andre believed any of it. If anything, he holds a similar contempt of such stories as with his father, and Pierre, as always, is semi-clueless towards the stories, but probably would believe them. All right. Oh, gosh. <clears throat> Excuse me. Let's read chapter 15, uh, which goes like this. When returning from his leave, Rostov felt for the first time how close was the bond that united him to Denisov and the whole regiment. On approaching it, Rostov felt as he had done when approaching his home in Moscow, when he saw the first hussar with the unbuttoned uniform of his regiment, when he recognized red-haired Demetyev and saw the picket ropes of the roan horses, when Lavrushka gleefully shouted to his master, The Count has come, and Denisov, who had been asleep on his bed, ran all dishevelled out of the mud hut to embrace him, and the officers collected round to greet the new arrival, Rostov experienced the same feeling as when his mother and his father and his sister had embraced him, and tears of joy choked him so that he could not speak. The regiment was also a home, and as unalterably dear and precious as his parents' house. When he had reported himself to the commander of the regiment and had been reassigned to his former squadron, had been on duty and had gone out foraging, when he had again entered into all the little interests of the regiment and felt himself deprived of liberty and bound in one narrow, unchanging frame, he experienced the same sense of peace, of moral support, and the same sense of being at home here in his, new, in his own place. 
as he had felt under the parental roof. But here was none of all that turmoil of the world at large, where he did not know his right place and took mistaken decisions. Here was no Sonia with whom he ought or not ought to have an explanation. Here was no possibility of going there or not going there. Here there were not 24 hours in the day which would could be spent in such a variety of ways. There was not that innumerable crowd of people of whom not one was nearer to him or farther from him than another. There were none of those uncertain and undefined money relations with his father and nothing to recall that terrible loss to Dolokhov. Here in the regiment all was clear and simple. The whole world was divided into two unequal parts. One, a Pavlograd regiment, the other, all the rest. And the rest was no concern of his. In the regiment everything was definite. Who was lieutenant? Who was captain? Who was a good fellow? Who was a bad one? And most of all, who was a comrade? The canteen keeper gave one credit. One de- One's pay came every four month. months. There was nothing to think out or decide. You had only to do nothing that was considered bad in the Pavlograd regiment, and when given an order to do what was clearly, distinctly, and def- definitely ordered, and all would be well. Having once more entered into the definite conditions of his regimental life, Rostov felt the joy and relief a tired man feels on lying down to rest. Life in the regiment during this campaign was all the pleasanter for him because after his loss to Dolokhov, for which, in spite of all his family's efforts to console him, he could not forgive himself, he made up he had made up his mind to atone for his fault by serving, not as he had done before, but really well, and by being a perfectly first-rate comrade and officer, in a word, a splendid man altogether, a thing which seemed so difficult out in the world, but so possible in the regiment. After his losses, he had determined to pay back his debt to his parents in five years. He received 10,000 rubles a year, but now resolved to take only 2,000 and leave the rest to repay the debt to his parents. Our army, after repeated retreats and advances and battles at Pultusk and Prusich Eliao, was concentrated near Bartenstein. It was awaiting the emperor's arrival and the beginning of a new campaign. Pavlograd Regiment, belonging to that part of the army which had served in the 1805 campaign, had been recruiting up to strength in Russia and arrived too late to take part in the first actions of the campaign. It had been neither at Pultusk nor at Prish Eliao, and when it joined the army in the field in the second half of the campaign was attached to Platov's division. Platov's division was acting independently of the main army. Several times parts of the Pavlograd regiment had exchanged shots with the enemy, had taken prisoners, and had once even captured Marshal Ordinot's carriages. In April, the Pavlograds were stationed immovably for some weeks near a totally ruined and deserted German village. A thaw had set in. It was muddy and cold. The ice on the river broke and the roads became impassable. For days, neither provisions for the men nor fodder for the horses had been issued. As no transports could arrive, the men dispersed about the abandoned and deserted villages, searching for potatoes, but found few, even of those. Everything had been eaten up, and the inhabitants had all fled. If any remained, they were worse than beggars, and nothing more could be taken from them. Even the soldiers, usually pitiless enough, instead of taking anything from them, often gave them the last of their rations. 
The Pavlograd Regiment had only two men wounded in action but had lost nearly half its men from hunger and sickness. In the hospitals, death was so certain that soldiers suffered from fever or the swelling that came from bad food, preferred to remain on duty and hardly able to drag their legs, went to the front rather than to the hospitals. When spring came, the soldiers found a plant just showing out of the ground that looked like asparagus, which for some reason they called Mushka's sweet root. It was very bitter, but they wandered about the field seeking it and dug it out with their sabres and ate it. They, they were ordered not to do so, as it was a noxious plant. That spring a new disease broke out among the soldiers, a swelling of the arms and legs and face, which the doctors attributed to eating this root. But in spite of all this, the soldiers of Denisov's squadron fed chiefly on Mushka's sweet root because it was the second week that the last of the biscuits were being doled out at the rate of half a pound a man, and the last potatoes received had sprouted and frozen. The horses had been fed for a fortnight on straw from the thatched roofs and had become terribly thin, though still covered with tufts of felty winter hair. Despite this destitution, the soldiers and officers went on living just as usual. Despite their pale, swollen faces and tattered uniforms, the hussars formed line for roll call, kept things in order, groomed their horses, polished their arms, brought in straw from the thatched roofs in place of fodder, and sat down to dine around the cauldrons from which they rose up hungry, joking about their nasty food and their hunger. As usual in their spare time, they lit bonfires, steamed themselves before them naked, smoked, picked out and baked sprouting rotten potatoes, told and listened to stories of Potemkin's and Suvorov's campaigns, or to legends of Alicia the Sly, or the priest labourer Mikolka. The officers, as usual, lived in twos and threes in the roofless, half-ruined houses. The seniors tried to collect straw and potatoes and, in general, food for the men. The younger ones occupied themselves as before, some playing cards. There was plenty of money, though there was no food. Some with more innocent games, such as quits and skittles. The general trend of the campaign was rarely spoken of, partly because nothing certain was known about it, partly because there was a vague feeling that, in the main, it was going badly. Rostov lived, as before, with Denisov, and since their furlough they had become more friendly than ever. Denisov never spoke of Rostov's family, but by the tender friendship his commander showed him, Rostov felt that the elder hussar's luckless love for Natasha played a part in strengthening their friendship. Denisov evidently tried to expose Rostov to danger as seldom as possible, and after an action greeted his safe return with evident joy. On one of his foraging expeditions in a deserted and ruined village to which he had come in search of provisions, Rostov found a family consisting of an old Pole and his daughter with an infant in arms. They were half-clad hungry, too weak to get away on foot, and had no means of obtaining a conveyance. Rostov brought them to his quarters, placed them in his own lodging, and kept them for some weeks while the old man was recovering. One of his comrades, talking of women, began chafing Rostov, saying that he was more wily than any of them, and that it would be not be a bad thing if he introduced to them the pretty Polish girl he had saved. Rostov took the joke as an insult, flared up, and said such unpleasant things to the officer that it was all Denisov could do to prevent a duel. When the officer had gone away, Denisov, who did not himself know what Rostov's relation with the Polish girl might be, began to upbraid him for his quickness of temper, and Rostov replied, "'Say what you like.' She is like a sister to me, and I can't tell you how it offended me because, well, for that reason. 
Denisov patted him on the shoulder and began rapidly pacing the room without looking at Rostov, as was his way at moments of deep feeling. Ah, what a mad weed you Rostovs are, he muttered, and Rostov noticed tears in his eyes. Alrighty, there we go. There's a chapter for you, Rostov, sheltering some uh, refugees there. <clears throat> All right, have your say about it over on the subreddit. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you tomorrow.